welcome to the 23rd episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to James Montague, freelance journalist and author. In the course of our conversation, we talk about his experiences of investigative journalism across the world of football, corruption and intrigue within the beautiful game, and slow journalism and its compatibility with football. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the world of the football media. Before that, though, it's James Montague, investigative journalism and the seedy side of football. Enjoy. I'm joined today by James Montague, freelance journalist and author. James, how are you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for having me on. Now, the first question on this podcast is always contextual and allows you to give the audience a sense of how you fit in to the football media. Now, there's a sense in which you need no introduction. Your reputation precedes you. But it is hard to locate you within the, the media because you've done so much. You've written in a number of different areas, not just the football media. A perfunctory glance at your CV shows that you've written for just about everyone there is to write for. As I said before we started, if I, if I were to list every every outlet that you've been published in, it would take take me a good long while. But you've also helped set up a slow news outlet. You've written three books so far. So where to begin? How did you end up in the football media as you have? It, it was, I mean, as with most things like this, it was kind of a, a little bit by accident. Um, I studied politics at university and um, I always thought I would go into some kind of, I was fascinated by politics, the day-to-day back and forth, which a lot of people, the minutiae of it all, um, which a lot of people are kind of tired now with Brexit, which I'm, which I'm only, because I'm, I'm based in Belgrade in Serbia, so I'm only getting a little snippet of that. Um, but it's enough. I mean, I'm fascinated by it, watching kind of like committee hearings when I should be really writing stuff. But <laughs> uh, so that was kind of my kind of interest. And then I, I kind of, uh, outside of university, I managed to get an internship at the Fabian Society. Um, and so I was doing kind of, I, I guess, kind of, working towards some kind of policy job or maybe wanting to work for an MP or something like that. It was really difficult because, you you know, it was, uh, I don't really have a lot of money and family don't have a lot of money. So I had to work selling double glazing part time whilst doing this internship. So it was you, know, you kind of with these things, you have to kind of hang around for a long time before anything comes up before you can get paid. So um, eventually uh, off the back of that, I found out that the Fabian Society had a really good relationship kind of founding similar founding fathers than the new statesman um and so i did a six-week internship there and i just completely fell in love with journalism i completely fell in love with the art and uh the, the people who were there were fantastic like i met, I met kind of nick cohen uh, christina adone uh johan hari before he when he was then a, a kind of hot young thing uh before the kind of fall and rise again is that right to say he's a fall rise or rise fall rise i can't remember there's been a couple <laughs> of them and um uh, it, it just the just the the energy and the intellectual kind of vigor was was incredible, and also the idea that any ideas you had were of equal to everybody else. So I was sitting in the editorial meeting, and you know things I suggested would end up on the paper that week in the, in the magazine that week. So it was um, I just completely. And so when I finished it, I just thought this is what I want to do the rest of my life, you know. Um, and the problem was that I was completely skint, so I had to take the first job that came along, which wasn't in journalism because there aren't that many. There wasn't even that many jobs back then. This was like two thousand and one. 
So um, I ended up uh, in the the clothing and textiles industry, (laughs) of all things, uh, like for a lobbying company for the the British Association of Clothing and Textiles, Um, but carried on freelancing. And um, I was freelancing kind of political stories, but I kept on coming across really interesting football stories that were very political but were but they were about football but they weren't about football you know uh, one of the first stories I came across was the Palestinian national football team who had been uh, you know they've been recognized by FIFA since 1998 but all the troubles they had movement restrictions uh, players being arrested uh, not being able to play at home uh, they, all, all their problems seemed to kind of perfectly mirror what the political situation was in the West Bank and Gaza and in Israel so I just I, I was kind of drawn more and more to those kind of stories and eventually I moved to the Middle East I saw a job advertised for Time Out I couldn't get a job in London there was a job in Time Out it was much easier to move abroad and find a job there if you're prepared to do it um, and you know spent two and a half kind of really exciting years there doing work far above my kind of ability really because we turned time out into kind of a current affairs magazine almost like taking on the big issues in the uae on the uh, at that time um but at the same time i was traveling to kind of countries in the middle east cause it was a very easy j- a jumping off point in dubai and i just came across all these amazing football stories in yemen and and in the west bank i, I finally managed to get there iran um iraq jordan and it gave me the idea to write a football book to write well I could write a book about the Middle East try to explain the Middle East through football uh, and I thought this was an incredibly um kind of fresh and new idea and it was only then that I discovered uh, Football Against the Enemy by Simon Cooper uh, and he'd been there before and I thought bollocks <laughs> but, I, uh, but I went uh, but I did it anyway and, I, and 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 so I kind of left my job went freelance and didn't really look back after that I, I've moved back to the UK the book came out and and that kind of was the beginning of it for me then after then I was I was you know most of my time writing about football but not writing about football yeah and there's a certain i think fair to, it's fair to say globalist outlook to your to your work i believe you got is it do you have a polish mother is that right yeah you grew up on the continent no i grew up in i grew up in essex so i was born and raised in essex but my mum came to england in uh, 1977 so she came when she was 27 years old so it's not like she was a young you know i mean she was young but you know it wasn't like she came over as a child she came as a kind of fully fledged polish person with a heavy <laughs> polish accent which is never really um really lost so i always had a kind of dual dual identity i mean i was i sounded english i sounded like i was from essex uh my polish was awful uh <laughs> but the uh but you know i i had i had a very um you know uh polish upbringing as well in terms of catholicism in terms of um the the festivals the 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 way we celebrated christmas and easter so culturally i had a very polish kind of upbringing in the house outside was purely english and i always thought of myself as kind of 51 percent english 49 percent polish uh which just there was just enough that if england paid poland which they if during the 80s they seemed to play them all the bloody time <laughs> and i would be the designated polack for people to kind of punish for that so it was all fine until the day of the game uh, and I would often get chased around the playground or there'd be issues. I remember there was one time I got chased home by someone on the eve of the game because there was, it wasn't just the 86 World Cup. I mean, there was qualification campaigns for Euro Championships and, 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 and the World Cup as well. So they, they just always seemed to get bloody drawn in the same groups. It was a nightmare. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I, the, the, I, I never grew up on the continent, but the continent was always, it wasn't far away. It was in the ne- room next to me. Did you think that affected your journalism in any way? I didn't think it did at the beginning. Um, but the more I, um, kind of 
found myself very comfortable moving around outside of England. I mean, there's not, you know, when you, when you travel around or live in separate places, I mean, you know, you don't meet that many English people my age. I mean, there's some places you can go and Dubai is one of them, Benidorm, you know, there's a few other places where there's a lot of English people, but there's not a lot of kind of, kind of younger English people trying to make a kind of name for themselves or trying to kind of find their place in the world in that kind of way. Um, and the more I kind of traveled around, the more it kind of made me realize that maybe that did have an effect. And I, I remember I had an ex-girlfriend from Romania and something she said to me struck me is because she, she thought I was English until we spent some time together. And she said, the only thing English about you is your mouth. <laughs> it meaning my accent, you know? And so I guess, you know, in some ways, uh, yeah, it was, I was always stuck between this kind of slightly, um, culturally conservative Englishness and a kind of, I don't know, a bit more of a open mind, not open minded, but like, I don't know how to kind of really say it, kind of a bit more of a kind of warm, less dogmatic way of looking at the wider world, I suppose. But I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the right way of describing it. But yeah, there was something and I, I, I still haven't quite got to the bottom of it. And I've been making, I've been asking those questions of myself again recently because we've got Brexit coming up and, you know, I'm, I'm, what was once seen when my mum came here in 1977 as a kind of uh, the worst passport in the world, fleeing communism, um, now is, you know, accidentally has turned into something that is very valuable to me now because I, I can still be part of this European project. Um, even though I'm Serbia, uh, I'm in Serbia, so I'm in kind of on the outskirts of it. But um, yeah, so it's, it's a kind of it's a kind of weird turnaround. But yeah, I think it did probably have some kind of effect. You've mentioned as well that you benefited from being willing to go and look for work outside of the UK. Would you say that's still the case in journalism, general football journalism? If you if you are more willing to to leave the country, do you think that you stand yourself in better stead? I found it almost impossible to get a job in journalism in Britain. And there is a reason for that. It's an extremely, it's, it's free, there's not many jobs. Um, it's an industry that is contracting. There, there are more opportunities to write than ever before. There's more opportunities to get, uh, to find a niche never before. There's more access to information, um, than ever before. But, the, but in terms of kind of full time jobs where you're paid to write, I mean, there's, there's a handful of them then and there are a handful of them now. And it's an extremely nepotistic industry. Uh, it's an industry that, uh, is, it punishes people who come from poorer backgrounds. It punishes people who don't come from the southeast of England. Um, it punishes people based on gender, race and class. And I was very lucky in that I, I on one hand, I suppose I, I'm a white man. I have, I have that, that privilege in this industry, certainly kind of 15 years ago. Uh, but most important, I had geography. I mean, I had my, I grew up in Essex, so I could actually physically afford to go commute, uh, and somehow make it work. Um, uh, and it's, it's very, I, I see that kind of similarity today as well is that when you look at the kind of people who are in the industry, not just football journalism, but journalism in general, it's dominated by people who, who have, enjoyed public school independent school education who come from you know more affluent backgrounds and so it's it's true to say i think that if you if like me you come from the, the kind of background that the vast majority of young people come from then you need to i, I would advise that you leave england britain immediately which is a ter terrible piece of advice at the moment because the door is being shut because of brexit I mean, um, there is, there is a world outside the European Union, of course. Um, I mean, I went to the, to the Middle East and that's, you know, still somewhere I'd recommend places, people to go. But, um, I, you know, certainly for football writing, 
Um, and not just football writing, any kind of writing. Um, you know, it, it, I still think it's beneficial to leave. I, I'd, I'd say it's essential to leave. A little bit more on, on the freelance journalism side of things. So you're a freelance journalist, unlike I think a lot of people in the sports media really, have it because it's become so difficult to be a full-time freelance journalist unless you are writing in a number of diverse areas. Do you think that this makes you navigate the world of sports media in a different way to your counterparts who are working as full-time employees of media outlets? Oh, absolutely, yeah. What sort of impact does that have on... I kind of, I kind of got used to freelancing in a way that I suppose it's a bit of Stockholm syndrome. You know, I've learned to learn to love my captor a little bit. You know, I kind of was a freelancer because I couldn't find a job, and in the beginning, it was you know I, I, some of the poorest times I've ever had. You know, I remember one time I was doing a story for CNN about the North Korean football team had turned up at a training camp in Switzerland. And I wanted to go and do it and I didn't have the money, but I, I took what I had and thought, well, okay, I'll, I will just stay in really cheap places. And I just remember at one point, you know, I hadn't been, I was expecting to be paid. That's kind of how you were working, like one story for one story and everything is very uh, expenses heavy. And in many cases in the beginning, I wasn't getting my expenses paid. So you'd, you'd try and do three stories rather than one to kind of pay for it. And, you know, I remember being there and I, I wasn't paid my credit card had been declined at the hostel the shared hostel i was staying at and uh, i remember sitting on on a kind of on a curb with a one euro in my pocket and i remember buying a beer and i was it was it was by lake constance and i just thought like this is this is miserable i'm hungry i've got nowhere to stay <laughs> i've got no one i can ask money from because you know it's it's not like i have a uh, family with open pockets or anything like that you know i mean there's they they, they didn't have the money to give to me so uh, luckily <laughs> the next morning I got paid and I could, you know, it was fine. But, you know, I went to bed hungry that night and it was, it was pretty depressing. And so it's, 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 a from that I've ended up kind of, it's kind of worked out okay. Um, I, I'm not sure many people would stick out at it for as long as I have because it's been about, I mean, I reckon I've been about 12 years freelance now. Um, but the, the most important thing I learned from it was that if you wanted a job or if you wanted a freelance, uh, if you wanted a full-time job or you wanted to be in the media in that way, you know, you have to kind of not wait your turn, but there's only, there's, there's so few opportunities to, to break into it. Whereas if you have a good idea, a commissioning editor will consider that good idea alongside a m- much more um, established journalist. So when I worked that out very early, I just got very good or practiced getting very good at pitching um spotting stories and pitching them in a kind of in a in a decent manner and that seemed to work so i was getting commissioned probably in publications i had no reason to be writing for uh but because the idea was good it it, it did you know you you kind of bypassed all this other garbage and baggage that you have to usually clamber over to get on in journalism whether it's class or whatever you know and uh and so I, f- I found that was that was the way in. And what I found with with freelancing compared to kind of some of my colleagues is that you know I had, I had just huge amount of freedom. Um, the the downside is the you know obviously you're, you're still chasing people for money. I mean it gets better the more you're doing stuff, but you're still chasing people. But the but the freedom is something that you know you, it's difficult to replicate. It's difficult for you can't you don't really have that in a full time job. Um, some people do. But though, I mean, you could probably count those positions on one hand, but it's, um, 
you know that freedom you can't you never want to give it up once once you've tasted it and once you've kind of made it work yeah it's rory smith daniel taylor and david con i guess yes i mean that's about it really uh tarik panjar as well yeah um who does a bit more kind of businessy stuff um but you know that, that's that's really about it there's a few others maybe barney rone i suppose if you want to buy if you want to write um kind of opinion pieces and kind of funny sketches as well uh but yeah there's 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 very few opportunities to travel and 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 get paid for it there's never been a better time to be writing about the topics that you cover than than the present how do you decide what to write about and is it entirely your own choosing or is there a level of conversation with editors that whereby you sort of work towards a uh, an idea no i usually have a very definitive idea about what i want to what I want to cover or a story that I've, that I want to do. Um, and usually it's, uh, there, there are periods where I find that, uh, I'll be working on something else and I'll come across a story whilst I'm working on that. And like, that's a brilliant kind of 1,500 word article, or that is a, uh, that is a 10,000 word long read article. Like I, I really believe, and I guess something that you get better with, uh, the more you do this kind of work is that you start to see the natural length of a story. Like I don't believe in long read for long read sake, but sometimes a story does have a natural length that deserves that kind of treatment. And sometimes it doesn't. And, and it's, I guess part of the skill is being able to spot which is which. Um, and you know, I mean, I went to, I did a story about last year for Bleacher Report about the Iran national team. And it started, that started off by me reading a story about, um, Masoud Sojai, the captain, uh, basically being kicked out of the national squad because he played for his Greek club against an Israeli team in the Europa League and the Europa League qualifiers. And I know a little bit about Iranian football because I wrote about it for, for when Friday comes. And I, I knew in the, in the past about how Iranian footballers had been punished for showing any kind of political, uh, or social conscience. And so I kind of dug into it a little bit and found out that he had been a, a big, advocate of women being allowed into the football stadiums which Iranian women are banned from at the moment from from men's football um and so this started off this this kind of journey that took me to I, I thought well I have to go to Iran went to the Tehran derby I was at the Tehran derby when 30 women were arrested outside trying to get into the stadium whilst Gianni Infantino was inside um and then from there I ended up meeting some of the women who were arrested it was very cloak and dagger um but all of it was also about trying to find Masoud Sojai. I wanted to speak to him. I wanted to speak to this guy who bravely stood up to Hassan Rouhani, uh, the, 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 the country's president, um, and asked him, you know, kind of on television, like, please allow women into the stadiums, which is kind of what, what beginning of his problems were. And so, you know, it, this, what turned out to be a story that was a kind of maybe a 400 word news write up on most wires was actually something much wider about women's place in Iranian society and about, you know, what role do sportsmen and women have in in trying to change the world around them when they see fit. So that ended up being about, <laughs> I think my editor was annoyed that it was about 1,200 words, uh, 12,000 words, sorry. Uh, but I felt that that was the, that was the kind of treatment that that, that, that kind of story deserved. So um, it's all, almost, all, I very rarely get somebody come to me with a story. Um, and I never take PR. I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm a failure if a PR contacts me. <laughs> And I decided to do a story off of what they've said. So I've never <laughs> once done that. Um, the, yeah. So, I mean, there's been recently, I mean, sometimes somebody will read, a commission editor will read a story I've read and essentially ask me to replicate it for them. Uh, in not so many words. I mean, but yeah. So it's, 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 it's quite hard work, but I did, the idea generation 
is something that I, that's probably other than the, the writing that final sentence when you've seen it all come together, the idea generation is probably the thing that gets me the most excited that I enjoy could probably most about, about this kind of life. And what does the pitching process look like for you? Do you, when you come up with a story idea, do you think immediately, Oh, this would be a good one for a bleacher report? Or do you come up with an idea and then pitch it around until it gets picked up? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends who, who I'm on good terms with and who I'm not on good terms <laughs> with. The more, I, I don't think that I'm a difficult person, but the, the, but, um, you know, or it's not that I get into feuds, but like sometimes I get annoyed, upset, you know, that things, you know, the, the treatment of the story hasn't been correct. I don't know. So sometimes there's sometimes where there's one publication that, that I'll be thinking, okay, that'd be for them. Others, for other, sometimes it's, it, it, it's a story that I think would be much better for the radio. So I do a lot of uh, BBC World Service stuff for the World Football Show or have done in the past anyway. And, um, so, you know, there are, there are definite, um, places where i think because you know something that's ten thousand words is never going to fit for the new york times um but something that has you know a much wider you know they love those stories that are much that say something much more about the world and uh, you know if that it was it was quite a natural fit to write for them i'd be very lucky to write for them it was that came completely by accident and i was in um it was 2011 and i was in i'd got myself to northern uh zambia for a story about the Libyan national football team. Um, the war was still going on. Gaddafi had escaped, had, had kind of relinquished power, but was still loose somewhere in Libya. And, uh, uh several of the football, uh, several of the national team players had been playing, uh, had been fighting on the front line in the war. And I found out about this and I went to Tunisia to meet the squad as they all came together. And these, these players had been fighting, had then came back to the squad. So they'd literally come from the front line to play in this team and you know there's a lot of the exiled uh fighters for you know from the uh, fighting at Gaddafi were in were in Tunisia at the same time so they would come to these warm-up games and they had to win this last game to qualify for the African Cup of Nations and it'd be this huge moment and football would become such an important thing to Gaddafi's family especially his sons who controlled the FA and you know Saadi Gaddafi famously played for Perugia even though he was kind of I think he was on Nandrolone, so he got banned. <laughs> uh, but c- considered the worst player to ever play in Syria, like kind of Ali Dia uh, kind of character. Um, and so, yeah, I, I managed to t- talk my way onto their chartered plane from Tunisia via Cameroon. We got we got stranded in Cameroon because uh, there was an election on, and so they closed their airspace for twenty four hours. So we we're stuck on the plane on the tarmac. And it took the pilot. I remember him handing bricks of hundred euro, hundred dollar notes to some guy for petrol, which they then <laughs> filled up the tank and then we were off. Uh, but I got to north, so northern Zambia, and I was doing this story for CNN, and I got there, and then CNN kind of just turned around and said, "Oh, actually, no, that don't actually probably won't use it." <laughs> I was like, "Mate, I've got I literally, I'm in rural northern Zambia because they because the Lusaka." was having its stadium renovated. So they had to play it in the Copper Belt in the north, which is right near the Congolese border. And I was like, oh, fuck. like <laughs> I had about, I think I had about 150 quid left in my account. And I was just like, I was fuming. And I, I, I knew a couple of people from the Times could have followed me. So I, I, I like literally direct messaged him on Twitter. I said, look, I'm, I'm in northern Zambia. I've got this story about Libya. You know, is there anyone you know who, who will know? And, and they could have put me through to somebody else and somebody else. And they commissioned me for it. And I wrote it. And about 30 seconds after I sent my first draft, the, um, all the electricity and internet failed for 24 hours in this 
<laughs> in this tiny kind of Zambian town. Uh, so it's, it could have like, it could have all gone kind of horribly wrong. Uh, Libya qualified, by the way, they drew and they had to get, uh, and it was one of the most amazing moments of, uh, of my life really, because I was in the dressing room with the Libyan players in like, start like just this really tense silence because we were waiting to hear what the score was in nigeria versus guinea uh because guinea were winning they had to win for uh, for libya to, to, to qualify and i just remember the kit man coming in you know and uh he shouted yalla and then you know god is great and and that was it it was just mad celebration <laughs> it was just it was a wonderful wonderful cathartic beautiful moment yeah and we were talking about potential topics to discuss on this uh, podcast episode you sent me a list so diverse it would have taken me months to read up on them all and prepare but um i, th- I think it'd be good to turn to the football leaks phenomenon because mm. it's obviously fairly topical it's also the sort of thing which encompasses a lot of the sorts of work that you do i was wondering do you th- when you when you see something like the football leaks happening do you consider that document dump useful for your job or do you sort of hope that you're actually the person making those revelations in the first place well i mean the, the revelations that come out of it are you know extremely useful because what they ha- what they tend to do i mean i have no access to the football leaks um you know data dump i mean that's for the spiegel i mean i've been in contact with rui um before when we called him john uh me and sam borden did a story for the new york times back in 2015 when it when the football leaks phenomenon begun because those revelations the first thing it did was shine a light on third party ownership in a different way doyen sports this this big agency that kind of was integral in it. And it kind of brought, you know, um, FC 20, the team that famously, uh, Steve McLaren, uh, won, won the Dutch uh, t- title with when he was coach. Um, it, it brought them to their knees, it almost got them relegated. And it certainly destroyed the kind of long term, long time kind of owner who had got into the bed with these people and it destroyed the club. And so, you know, it was it was clear. I mean, I went back and forth when I was writing The Billionaires Club, which is a book about the super rich taking over football, um, that, that, you know, I wasn't going to get access to any of that material. I, I could understand why. Uh, but the revelations that they're making now um, are like with The Billionaires Club, I was trying to connect the dots with the super rich. Why are they buying these clubs and how are they doing it? You know, and what's the one big character in this is Manchester City and also the royal family of Abu Dhabi and Sheikh Mansour uh, people who I know very well uh, the system I know very well from living in the United Arab Emirates um, so I was incredulous at some of the, the statements this club were making and this ownership were making about why they bought the club what they're up to how how it, they're kind of just benign kind of happy-go-lucky billionaires that are just a bit bored of their time and want to invest in football uh, that could be a good future business, which, you know, football, there's a lot of money in football, but as a profitable business, it's not, you know, you're not, you're not making huge amounts of money. You know, the, 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 the margin is tiny compared to what these guys make in other, in other forms of business. And what the football leaks dumped and, and the, the subsequent, um, sorting of it by Der Spiegel did was help to really solidify this idea that what City and what uh, City's ownership kind of are up to uh, is no good for football, no good for society. And it fits their kind of MO completely, how they operate in when it comes to dealing with dissent in the country, when it comes to dealing with worker rights in their country, when it comes to dealing with uh, all sorts of human rights uh, abuses. Uh, you see how... Uh, Khaldun al-Mubarak talks or allegedly talks if he, if these, if these 
emails are indeed true, you know, about destroying UEFA if it dares to kind of step up and dares challenge uh, what 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 the ownership are doing. You know, this is this is how golf autocracies work, autocrats work, and so it's been incredibly useful, I think, in firming up a lot of the things that I, personally I've I've been writing about in the Billionaires Club, and I think a lot of other people have been suspecting and kind of circling around because it's um you know it's it's a it's a i mean i've recently had this with with a couple of stories it's it's always difficult with documents like this because you you know are they are they leaked are they being uh, have they been hacked are they uh you have to make all these kind of judgments um but usually information that is released um if it's in the public interest i think that overrides every other consideration let's talk about the book the the billionaires club you've already mentioned it in many respects you are ahead of the curve there how do you think the world's changed since you wrote that book and would you do things differently now if you were writing it at this point i wouldn't say i was ahead of the curve um i would say, i mean david con wrote a book about <laughs> not not that dissimilar of about 15 years ago um it's it's if anything well, i mean you know, I mean, several of the characters have died since I've written it. Um, there's been, I mean, it was with, with Billionaires Club, it, it, when I started it, it was a different book to how I finished it because there were different players rising and falling all the way through. I mean, when I first started putting out ideas for it, uh, it was actually in 2008 when I was, well, I just finished writing When Friday Comes about football in the Middle East. And I was thinking, what next? And uh, one of the things that happened when When Friday Comes came out was Manchester City was bought by Sheikh Mansour. And nobody knew who Sheikh Mansour was. Like, why is this guy buying you? Who? And it, it just turned out that I had just come back from living in the United Arab Emirates and just written a book about football in the Middle East. And so um I ended up get, like, going on CNN to talk about it on one of their uh, kind of kind of news broadcasts. And after that, I thought, you know what? Who are these billionaires? You know, what, where do they come from? Like what? I mean, I knew about Sheikh Mansour, but what about Roman Abramovich? You know, what, what's his motivations for this? And, um you know, I'm glad I held off because, you know, it's a completely different world to to 2008 or 2003 and i think in 10 years time it's going to be almost unrecognizable in terms of even if we're going to have um, national leagues and a uefa champions league in the same kind of way and it's I, I don't think it's changed so much since it came out i think it's held up pretty well so far um and it does give useful i think it gives some pretty useful kind of background into the motivations of these people and certainly that what they say is their real motivation is completely untrue um but i suspect that in 10 years time it will be a historic you know if you look back at it it'll be like you know maybe maybe we can see where where the roots of what is going to happen to football in the future which which i think is going to be probably quite bad um i think if you look at what what's going to happen if you see what happened to FIFA at the moment with this 25 billion euro, uh, dollar uh, kind of new club world cup, international club world cup. And it's something that I touch on in the billionaires club is that the, the owners who are kind of, they, 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 they're trying to, they're in a pincer movement. They're trying to create a kind of cartel where they can replicate a model like the NFL that will create not like a European super league. We already have a European super league, but a kind of global super league that is completely separate from national leagues where you will not have promotion and relegation and that will be a separate strata uh, and have these withering kind of national leagues underneath it and beyond that you know the idea of a geographical location for a football club i think is is going to be under threat as well in the same way in the franchise system in the u.s and i can really see a club one day moving to a big you know chinese city 
Um, I mean, you already have Manchester City taking a different approach to that by basically having the City Football Group and having, you know, a, a kind of franchise brand system where everybody has the same coloured shirts and everybody has a kind of like City-style makeover. Um, but there will be a time when first it will be a game, you know, play a game in Dubai, and then eventually it will be the, 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 the money and connection to the local community will be so small and the, the, the reward's so great uh, for moving elsewhere that you'll see an English Premier League club one day move to another place I've no I have no doubt about that is football irredeemable have you ever considered ditching it completely I don't think I can um I, because I mean also I mean it is endlessly fascinating I mean I'm I'm you know I I can if <laughs> I feel like I kind of see everything now through the prism of football and the world like try to understand the world if there's a my my partner's a, a, a foreign correspondent she does the, she's kind of the Balkans correspondent for the NOS, which is the Dutch equivalent of the BBC. And whenever we speak about any stories that she's on, I'm always thinking about what's the football angle. Sometimes there is, sometimes it isn't. You know, it's like the grandfather from Goodness Gracious Me who thinks everybody's from India. Like everybody's, everybody's from India. And I, I always think, oh, there's a, you know, there's a football route to that. And she's like, there's no football story. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, uh, so it, I mean, I think it might be irredeemable. Um, there's a couple of things that might stop this march of the super rich. Um, I mean, football in a way is a reflection of society. I mean, we, we see that when we talk about the return of kind of racism and the rise of the far right, uh, back on the, back on the terraces, not just in, in the UK, but across, uh, across Europe and in the rest of the world. Um, but ultimately I think it needs, you know, I think if there's a, if there's a financial correction, that might be the only thing that, that stops this march this inevitable march towards the game being completely co-opted by, by billionaires and oligarchs, that, that it becomes something that is so, that the, the TV rights, you know, collapses, uh, that some form of technology completely destroys, which it might already be doing with the cord cutting, which you really see with, uh, TV deals in NFL and, and might be something that affects future Premier League TV deals. Um, but that, I think that's the only thing that can stop it because it, I mean, there, there are really brave and uh, laudable fan movements all across Europe trying desperately to kind of stymie this kind of march. Like if I've spent a lot of time in December in Germany meeting fans who are campaigning to keep 50 plus one, which is, you know, this is a huge issue with the ultras and supporters groups in Germany at the moment. And it's something that, um, you know, we, we don't, haven't seen that kind of level of activism in England, but there is part of me that thinks that, you know, the, the, the powers are so, there's so much money and power behind the people that want to kind of dismantle the system that eventually they will get their way. And they've been very good at holding them off. But, you know, you know, I fear, I, I do fear for the future of football. You know, I fear for the future of football as a game that's rooted in its community where clubs are rooted in their community. I mean, that, that line is already being kind of sawn away, I think, uh, because people are being priced out. But I think, you know, geographically that, that, you know, I mean, you go and see Arsenal now. I mean, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and one of the, one image I'll never forget was going to North London, which is now, you know, I mean, there are very, very poor pockets of North London, some of the most deprived boroughs in the UK, uh, areas in the UK in, in Islington. But, you know, the people that go to watch Arsenal, the people that can afford to go to, you know, represent how gentrified that area have become. And I remember watching Arsenal Hull. Uh, in the FA Cup final, and I went with a friend of mine down Essex Road, we went to a couple of pubs, and I remember being, even inside the pub was incredibly gentrified, and outside the pub, there was about, I reckon, 15, 20 people who were watching it, who couldn't afford to drink inside the pub, but 
and we're all from the local community um and we're taking breaks from their jobs as security as security uh workers one guy was uh, drove an ambulance for a living um you know this was the working class community of North London and they were so priced out of football they couldn't even go to a pub to watch you, to watch a game and uh, that will never leave me and this is a few years ago I mean it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse and so yeah I, I do I do fear for the future of football but I you know on from purely selfish point of view I guess <laughs> I mean it means that there are things to write about but then you could say the same thing about you know if you're a politics writer about in the age of Trump yeah Trump means there's loads of copy to write about but I mean ultimately if it leads to Armageddon then you know who gives a shit yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about the untethering of clubs from the the sort of locales and communities that they that they grew up in and I was wondering so much of the stuff that you seem to do when it comes to writing about football is about that community aspect so Mm. you travel around the world and you see the way that football functions within communities and has that sort of powerful ability to create meaning and and solidarity amongst these communities i just wondered whether or not you you sort of see the 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 contrast between elite football in the in the top five leagues and then these places that you're going to and whether or not that sort of itself has a generative power in your own uh, attempts to write about football Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I'm working on a, a new. My next book is going to be about. Um, I don't want to give too many details, but it's, it's it's about essentially kind of organised fan groups around the world, and it's a, it's a huge global culture. Um, and you know that that's some of it is is quite violent. Um, some of it is um, on the political spectrum. You have, I mean, it's it's a it's a scene of extremes, far left, far right, mostly. Um, uh, some of it is extremely politically principled, whether left or right, um, like as you see in Germany. So, you know, it's, it's still there. There's still, uh, people kind of fighting it and still attaching themselves and their identity to football clubs and the football club representing them in, in many ways. But, you know, the problem with in an age of money, like we have at the moment, is that every club, regardless of what they say to their fans, is looking, you know, at the stars. They're looking for the, like, they're looking for the Premier League. They're looking for the Champions League. And when it gets down to brass tacks, you know, um, often as soon as, as soon as there is the opportunity, it's unfortunately many fans will accept almost anything. And that, that was kind of the most depressing conclusion of the billionaires club was that, you know, I mean, I, the original ending of the book was going to be because it, I, I kind of divide the world into, you know, Eastern Europe, Asia, America, um, the Middle East. And, you know, in the end, I go to Portsmouth, who kind of had been afflicted by ownership, including the UK, um, afflicted by terrible ownership from all of those places. And so kind of Portsmouth kind of represented for me what was, you know, the first team uh, to go into receivership in the Premier League, you know, kind of encapsulated everything that could happen and everything that could be wrong about football. But here it was now, saved by the fans, um, you know, a real community club, brilliant stadium, needs a bit of work, but great stadium in the city, you know, um, old, you know, old school fans, old school city, um, great day out for football. And, you know, the book was, was going to end there. You know, they got into the playoffs from League Two after going almost, you know, being wiped off the map. Uh, they didn't get promoted that year, but it was, it was just brilliant carnival atmosphere. And then as I was kind of finishing the book, um, you know, Michael Eisner, the ex CEO of Disney swoops in and, you know, makes it makes a bid to buy the club, and this is a guy who is a he's a genuine billionaire, one of what you know, very well respected businessman. But immediately, the immediately it changed. The conversation changed. It wasn't about you know how far could we take this model of fan ownership 
because the fans save the club and the fans own the club. How far can we take it? Maybe we'd be okay. We we survive the fans that own the club, but maybe the championship is the best we can hope for. The conversation switched immediately to we can be back in the Premier League. We can be back in the big time. Um, this is our opportunity. And so anybody that stood up and said, well, hang on, like we've been down this path before, was shouted down in the same way that a lot of Pompey supporters trust guys were shouted down uh, when the previous ownership had been questioned or like, like you know, what's going to happen in the long run? We've got a lot of debt. What, what happens if you go? You know, don't, sh- don't, don't mention it. You know, things are going great right now. And so, it, it, you know, it was quite a depressing end in the end because, you know, the fans voted to allow Eisner's takeover. And this is nothing against Michael Eisner. I mean, he's, he seems to have done a, you know, pretty decent job. He had a good reputation in business. He doesn't seem to be a particularly bad person. Um, but it shows that when, when there is money that is, that is offered, um, it's very, very difficult for, for people in the clubs to say no. And I think that's the, that's the biggest, um, I think that's, that's the biggest kind of barrier to, to preserving, uh, kind of these really important links with the communities and football clubs, even lower down, all the way down to, to, to the non-league level. Now, and as a Leeds fan, I'm faced with that conundrum at the moment, you know, being able to enjoy football at its, at its, I, I guess, in that sweet spot between being owned by a, an owner who, who is putting enough money in the club for it to do well. I mean, whether or not that will carry on into the Premier League is another matter, but we also get to enjoy playing quite good football in a fairly good league. And all that will change if we go up. Uh, at the end of the season so I think that's that's, that's a sort of interesting conundrum for, for all fans at the, the present time I mean I have that as well I mean I'm even, I've even you know I'm always wondering I, I guess you don't want to be a hypocrite right you don't want to be uh, you know you're writing about these things and people are always looking if you take a moral stance on anything people are always looking for you to you know to, to call you a hypocrite uh, to find examples of where you're wrong because it proves their point and then they can besmirch all your work based <laughs> on that and um, you know, and I, I, I have this with, with, you know, I still love watching English Premier League football. I still love, I mean, I grew up a West Ham fan. Uh, I can't not be a West Ham fan, even though the club I, I grew up with, I, you know, I remember when I first started going, I'd stand on the North Bank in the last few years, seasons before it got knocked down and, and replaced and then moved to this monstrosity of a stadium, um, taken over by, you know, two guys who made their money in the porn industry, which is, you know, extremely problematic. I mean, I've met Gold a couple of times. He's very, uh, very smart, nice guy. Um, I think Sullivan is more the hardcore kind of guy. Um, I think Gold was much more into the kind of titillating smut has been taken along uh <laughs> during during the um during the kind of the the, the wild porn years of the 70s and 80s <laughs> uh, but you know even to the point where i'm like i, I play fantasy football because i've got, you know it's a good way to c- keep connected to people at home and i love it you know and you know i'm like do i do i sign a manchester city player for my fantasy football team am i a hypocrite for getting <laughs> for getting aguero you know because the the, the the discourse now about ownership and um success is so poisonous. And we can see this at the moment with Manchester City in that their fan base, and I'm sure it's not all of their fan base, uh, but certainly the, the most vocal on Twitter, if that is an, if that is an indication of anything at all, um, is, 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 is unbelievable. I mean, literally unbelievable. I mean, you, somebody will come up and say, listen, we have documents. They seem pretty genuine, which seem to suggest that, you know, Man City played the, uh, you know, lied essentially to funnel cash to get around kind of um um financial fair play rules and instead of thinking well God, crikey i mean maybe these people aren't what we thought they were the the the, the kind of what about ism is just frightening and 
it's something I think you mentioned Rory Smith earlier. I mean, he made a point. A few other people have made the same point as well around the same time about how if we look at kind of fake news, um, Trumpism, uh, you know, the idea that the truth doesn't really exist um only only what you want it to exist that there's no real truth out there and it's just everything subjective you know football's been a brilliant breeding ground for that for years and social media has been as well and the amount i mean it's it's depressing you read the, the kind of replies to um nick harris or you know anybody that writes or any of the desh beagle stuff first of all desh beagle right so yeah one of their writers got caught as a plagiarist therefore um <laughs> everything 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 they've ever written is false right that is a conspiracy by bayern munich uh you who are using desh beagle to uh kind of destroy manchester city that um, the, the uh, Manchester City is like some plucky underdog that is trying to kind of destroy the cartel. That, that you know, and that's what they're—that's who's trying to destroy Manchester City. This cartel, uh, shadowy cartel. I don't know who. Like, what is it? The Glazers? Is it? I don't know who it is. But some some form of football cartel is trying to destroy Manchester City. And if you bring up the human rights stuff, it's like, well, um, Manchester United are sponsored by Saudi Telecom, so that's the same as having an owner who's you know literally involved in the day to day running of a country that is engaged in systematic human rights abuses it it's 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 um it's really depressing and and it's it, i mean it's not just manchester city chelsea's chelsea have long been <laughs> ahead of the curve on this kind of thing <laughs> um and i'm i'm as night follows day if manchester united get bought by a saudi consortium may be controlled by sheikh salman um uh by, by mohammed bin salman uh of bone sore fame uh, i imagine we'll have exactly the same mental gymnastics to justify them being bought by by a saudi royal family you know the same i often hear the same thing from from people you know well we've got to compete so you know choose your poison you know <laughs> yeah well let's try and move topics onto slightly more positive things but you've written you've written three books you've mentioned that you're writing another one what's the process that you go through when you're writing a book is it something that you have on the back burner all the time while you're doing your other freelance work and how do you balance your time when you're doing that well i mean it's all mixed in together really because by, by you know i'll be i'll have an idea it'll, it'll just take for a while like when Friday Comes was around, the idea before it got commissioned was probably two or three years. The Billionaires Club was probably 10 years before it got kind of commissioned and, and put out there. Um, 31 nil was a different one because that was, I mean, in a way, that's the most linear, straightforward. I mean, you are, you are literally chronologically going for, you know, World Cup qualifiers to World Cup qualifiers following these kind of tiny teams who will never qualify for the World Cup, I, which was, by the way, I mean, I'm, I don't think I've actually ever recovered from that. That was, that was, I can't, I can't, the organ, I'm not an organized person. Um, and that was, that involved a level of organization that I think probably took a little piece out of me. Um, the travel, the, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, there's a lot of dangerous moments. I mean, I, that was the time that I got, I kept on getting tear gassed at various football matches and it just, it became a kind of topic. It became, it became a kind of regular thing that happened during the writing of that book. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now getting to the position where books kind of can not exactly pay your rent, but certainly can, you know, you can, they're, they're part of your kind of living that you make. Uh, but I still always have to write and I try to write around the subject as much as possible. I mean, in the early days, I would have to, you know, because the advances are so small and these, you know, going out of, especially for first time authors, they're getting almost non-existent that I, I would often get to a place that I would know that I would need to do a chapter. Um, go there, research it and try and do one or two stories elsewhere, not connected to the book. So even when I'm not 
writing, you know, even when I'm writing a book, uh, I'm still freelancing. But it's it's kind of in a, I guess if you looked at my social media posts of any year that I'm traveling, you could probably guess what I was writing a book about, bearing of the kind of the kind of side articles <laughs> that I've been writing off off the back of it, you know. Um, and then at the end of it, end, end of this process, and all of them are extremely travel heavy, um, largely because there was there was no way that I could differentiate myself from anybody else if I just sat at my desk. I mean, what am I going to write about? Like, I mean, I could write columns, I suppose. But that's not really my thing. Um, I, you know, I grew up loving kind of John Ronson and, and, and Louis Theroux and people like that who, you know, you, you have to be there standing there, you know, seeing the whites of the people's eyes who you're talking to and, and usually in quite kind of funny, um, scary situations. And, you know, one of the first books I read that, that made me think, yeah, this is what I want to do was Homage to Catalonia, which again was, you know, George Orwell going to the Spanish Civil War, getting injured. Uh, probably the injury that curtailed his life. I mean, it didn't help that it was, you know, kind of smoking 40 fags a day either. Is anything fair game for an investigative journalist? Is there anything that you think when you're going through it, I shouldn't be doing this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think if, so with any story and especially with investigative journalism, you're always thinking of what's the public interest? You know, is there any public interest in, you know, rooting through somebody's bin, you know, uh, Raheem Sterling's bin. No, there isn't. Um, is there any public interest in, you know, reading the emails of Emil Heskey, if you got hold of them? Well, I mean, unless he's done something really bad that we don't know about. I mean, I'm guessing probably <laughs> no. You know, there probably isn't. I mean, but there might be titillating things in there. I don't know. Emil, I don't have any access to your emails. I'm just using you as an example, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, you know, it's uh, you always have to think about it. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I got... Uh, I got asked actually one of the few times I got asked to do a story and uh, to do a kind of like a, a true crime type of football story about there was a game where it was in the it was in the minor Welsh leagues and a player broke another player's leg and uh, that that player went to prison for it and it's you know rare so it was kind of like how did it affect these people how did it affect the community you've seen those kind of stories written before but I remember going to Wrexham. And I was a little bit, it's not really my, I don't know. I was a bit unsure about it. But I thought, okay, they've asked me to go, I'll go, right? Worst things happen. Worst comes to the worst. I'll go up with my mate who's got a car because I, I, I don't have a driving license in the UK. So he'll drive up there and worst comes to the worst, we'll have a pissed up weekend in Wrexham, right? Because it, it must be fun in Wrexham, right? On a Friday, Saturday <laughs> night. So we drive up there and it becomes very clear to me that this was, because it's such a small community, because this was, you know, uh, I think it was a Welsh first division team. Can't remember exactly the name of it, but it, you know, the, the person whose leg was broken didn't want to speak. The person who was in prison, his family, you know, uh, they was livid that he was in prison and it, it, there was a really poisonous atmosphere between everybody and Eventually, I just, I, was, I remember going and meeting the owner of the football club who owned a pet cemetery, <laughs> uh, by the way, in Wrexham, which was, I mean, it turned up and it was just, it was the first thing I saw was a gravestone for an animal called Splodge. <laughs> and there's a gravestone with Splodge, which was, I mean, you know, somebody loved Splodge and somebody had, you know, paid a lot of money to have Splodge, um, honored in the manner that Splodge <laughs> deserved. But, you know, and I remember interviewing him and when I was interviewing him, I just thought, and you know, it would have been a very funny scene to describe this pet cemetery and splodge and everything. And I just, but I just thought, I, I don't want to drag this up. I don't, I can't see what the, I can't see what the public, what the, in, what the public interest is in this. I can't see what good it would do anybody. Uh, it certainly won't do this community any good. 
uh, digging around here. And so I phoned my editor and I said, I, I don't think this is a story we want to do. It's not a story I want to do. And luckily they were, they were pretty cool about that. And so in the end, I just had a kind of quite drunken weekend <laughs> in Wrexham, but, but you've always got, to, you've always got to think that. And, and I mean, recently we've, we've done a few things for the New York Times about, um, you know, which I think are really in the public interest about what's going on with the media in terms of, um, how they're covering Qatar and the influence of the UAE in Qatar on the stories that are getting produced and how that's connected to the blockade. But that's a different thing. I think that's very, that's a very clear public interest issue. But, um, I think, you know, if anybody asked me to go and stake out, you know, or do Benji the bin man on Raheem Sterling, I'd be like, well, there's absolutely no fucking way I'd ever do that. <laughs> and I'm lucky because I'm a freelancer, so I can tell them to go fuck themselves. But, um, you know, a lot of people don't. And I'm a bit conflicted when I see that sometimes. And it's usually to do with the Daily Mail, you know, doing something terrible. And it's usually some kind of newbie freelance journalist who's just starting out, gets absolutely piled on. Um, but if you, you know, I'm lucky I can walk away from it and I, I will take the hits financially or otherwise from that but a lot of people can't and um so i'm a little bit conflicted about criticizing necessarily about that but yeah there is there is i'm always having a question about what who is this for and um what what are you hoping to expose and is is it it really truly in the public interest do you believe that your work changes anything is it meant to or are you simply documenting the way that the world is jesus i mean depressing, (laughs) depressing thought i mean you'd like to think that it does make some kind of difference somehow um and there's only been a few times where I can see, where I've seen a direct, you know, change in something. You know, I mean, I remember with CNN, um, I, I came across the story of a, a footballer who was stuck in Qatar, stuck in the Kafala system. Um, and, you know, his story was absolutely horrific. Like he was there with no wages. He was being abused by the court system and, you know, he was suicidal and, you know, I think the, the reporting that, that I did by undercover, uncovering that story and later on by James Masters covering the, the other journalist who, who's at CNN covering that on, you know, he, he, he got out of, he was, he eventually got out. Um, and that probably wouldn't have happened without CNN really kind of focusing in on that. And so there are times when you can think, yeah, do you know what? That really did make a difference. Most of the time, um, there isn't that kind of blockbuster kind of like you could cause an effect is very direct, but you hope that you, that what you're revealing will somehow percolate into the kind of consciousness enough that that becomes something that people consider whenever they, whenever they approach that issue. So particularly with the billionaires club, you know, I mean, a lot of the time, you know, I do stories that I just, I, I, I'm really fascinated by something and I want other people to know about it, you know. And so when I went to North Korea for the Bleach Report or Iran or, uh, recently for the New York Times, I went to Poland to do a story about how a hooligan group had taken over Wisła Krakow and Jakob Brauchikowski had arrived to save the club. Um, you know, these are just fantastic stories. And I love telling them and I love writing them and I love going out and talking to people and somehow kind of relaying almost exactly how I've seen it to, to readers and to, and to people who are listening on the radio. But other things like the Billionaires Club, you know, I hope that it has, you know, it, it contributes to some kind of understanding of the world and it might not necessarily end Kafala. It probably won't, but it, it's one brick with many bricks that will hopefully, or taking a brick out of a wall among other bricks that come out of that wall that will hopefully lead to its eventual destruction. You've mentioned as well, you spend a lot of time traveling places that many people would consider dangerous. You've mentioned the Bleacher Report coverage of football in North Korea. You've just come back from Ukraine covering far-right football fandom. How aware are you of the danger that you're in when you're in these places? And do you take any special precautions when you're there? 
I got asked this quite a lot when when Friday Comes came out because because it's about the Middle East and you know most people in Britain and the West look at the Middle East as somewhere that is just inherently dangerous and one thing you realize when you live there and you travel there is that yeah there are wars there of course I mean but there is a lot of similarities between our societies that we you know we, we were britain for instance was a was a fairly religious conservative society until relatively recently in the past couple of decades really when you think about even stuff like section 28 you know um it was i, I, I think this is from my law a level that i studied but i think you know kind of marital rape was legal until like 1990 or something 88 or something crazy like that so you know when I went there, the societies didn't, you know, language is different. You know, booze culture is different. doesn't exist. Um, young people kind of smoked hash mainly rather than, you know, drank booze, but it wasn't that different. And when, um, I was, I was kind of traveling around, I had to have, because I was a freelancer, I didn't have a Kevlar jacket and a helmet. Um, I didn't have the backing of a big news organization behind me. Um, I had to become attuned to what the risk was. You know, could 2007, for instance, I got, um, I went to Iraq, but I knew I couldn't go to Baghdad because Baghdad would be, uh, you know, there were, there were 300 people a day being murdered in Baghdad. I wasn't going to be somebody who, uh, could go there really and be safe. And I knew that. So instead I went to, I had to look at it and I went to Erbil, which is in northern Iraq. The Kurdish forces, this is before ISIS, of course, but the Kurdish forces were in charge. It was basically c- completely safe. I mean, they started uh, flights from Vienna to Erbil. I could go there. Um, a- another occasion in 2009, I went, we, I was, I was embedded with the, uh, US Coast Guard in the Persian Gulf because they were training the Iraqi Navy how to, you know, how to protect their shoreline, which is very small, but it turns out that kind of something like 40% of the world's oil comes out of a pipeline out of like this very tiny piece of coastline. So it was one of the most important kind of five kilometers of coastline in the world. And so I was, I knew I was there with, with troops and I was kind of relatively safe there as well. So I was, I've always been taking, I've always become attuned to what is a risk, what is too much of a risk. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I've written about like some of the scrapes I've got into, mostly they're funny and I've got away with them. Some of them have been quite scary, but I've never really, I, 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 I feel like I've got quite a good compass to know you know when when is too far i mean sometimes it goes a bit awry i mean i was i did something about football in gaza for the bleach report uh and <laughs> i got taken by the gaza police after there's a riot after one of the games in, in near the rafa crossing and my my fixer and translator was saying james we have to go now this is getting really bad now i was like oh I'll just take one last photo and that one last photo was the one with the guy trying to grab my camera and i ended up getting <laughs> taken i ended up getting taken to the office see the head guy the head hamas guy um and this police officer is livid because i disrespected him and he's screaming um you know so it was it was just it was it was horrible and and that was that was when my my you know my in-tuned radar wasn't there and i you know again i mean i was in ukraine and i was in mariupol which is you know it's 15 kilometers from the front line of a war that's very much still raging on and we we went to the front line we were, we were about a kilometer from it but that's as far as i would go because uh, i i don't think the the troops would let me go any further but i if i'm going into a trench warfare where you can hear artillery fire you kind of need to go with proper equipment and so yeah it's just you know north korea again it was 
North Korea was a, you know, I knew I was going in fairly safely, semi-officially as a journalist. That was the only thing that was worrying. And then whilst I was there, of course, the nuclear bomb was tested. So I was always in a state of fear that they would find out that I write for, you know, the New York Times or CNN or something and think, ah, this guy's an American journalist. We're going to have him. (laughs) He'll be a good. So that was always in the back of my mind. But um, when I planned it, it seemed perfectly safe. So, I mean, I'm going, I'm, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to Indonesia um again to you know do something on fan culture that they've got an amazing fan culture in indonesia and and you know i'm i'm going through the checklist again you know what what you know where are you going who are you speaking to um i've been doing this for, for, for years now i mean the only thing that's really stopping me now really is my i'm a, I'm a father now and that's i i remember once when somebody friend of mine read the first edition of when friday comes i was getting i was getting divorced in the middle of writing it because uh, I got married quite young and I was going through quite a hedonistic time and I wrote the last kind of three chapters in the midst of all of that and my friend read it and he just said it's like you had a death wish at the end and I had to think <laughs> about that you know and uh, you know um there have been moments like that but and there is a certain I guess adrenaline you get from being in those type of situations but now you know I have a three-year-old daughter and it's not something not something I want to be involved with. I think this probably might be the last kind of book I do like this, I think, because, you know, I'm, I'm 40 later this year. Um, I'm not so good. I've had a good innings. Like I'm some <laughs> like dog that's about to be put down, but it's, you know, there's a, maybe there's a time to kind of move on and, 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 and do different things. And I feel like I've, I would have covered, there's a lot to still write about football culture. I think we're only really academically and journalistically, at the at the start of really understanding it all but or even kind of documenting it all but um you know i think i've covered enough of it i think for now (laughs) so i wanted to talk a little bit about slow news because you're one of the founding editors of delayed gratification could you tell us a little bit about that outlet and what its approach means for news reportage in general but I'd, i'd be more interested actually to hear if you think there's space for that sort of journalism in football itself I think there absolutely is. And, and I mean, slow journalism is already in football. I mean, one of the things that happened in the same year we started delayed gratification, delayed gratification, I remember we were sitting together. It was, it's a, a group of kind of half a dozen uh, ex-journalists from Time Out Dubai. We all met in Dubai and we thought we were great friends and we, you know, all had very similar kind of attitude to journalism and, and diff- brought different skills as well. And we thought, you know, maybe one day we're all going to be in London and we'll just do the magazine that we want because there's a lot of censorship in Dubai. And that that's very, or was, I mean, now if you wrote the kind of stuff that we wrote then, I mean, we did a big front page story about um, censorship in the, in the UAE media, which you, that would get you deported, if not put in prison, if it was, um, if it was published today, certainly the magazine would be shut down. Um, it's a, it's a very good skill to learn. It's a very good thing as a journalist to work in an environment where you are censored or fear censorship because you have to be very smart about working around it and i think that was one of the one of the great things i kind of learned about working there but we all we all kind of came back to london eventually and felt like we wanted to do something that wasn't set to a deadline anymore and that we could write what we wanted and we would make the perfect magazine so we thought well you know we'll be the last of breaking news and somebody said that and I thought, you know, that's the, that's the company, that's the strap line for the company, last of breaking news. So we, we kind of came up with this concept where we would, we would tell the story of what happened in the previous quarter, but waiting for the dust to settle and then picking up, you know, the threads of what was important, putting context, um, into some of it. And, and hopefully the one way somebody's described it is that it's a, like a fast history textbook. You know, it kind of tells history in kind of real time. And that's not to say that a three month, 
looking back three months is um, equally going to be enough perspective. But we also go back kind of further and further and further. Uh, and, you know, eventually, you know, we come up with this idea of a slow, slow news, you know, magazine or journal. Which has become quite a big thing now. I mean, there's all, all sorts of slow news journals are kind of popping up. But, you know, there was a football one because the same year that we started delayed gratification, the Blizzard came out. And I, I see the Blizzard in as very much a kind of sister publication to delay gratification. I mean, Jonathan Wilson's written a few things for us. I've written a few things for the Blizzard. Um, and, uh, you know, he, they've, it's not quite as, um, dogmatic in its kind of following of us of because we've got a very distinct format um the blizzard's a bit looser but in terms of giving space to longer form or even sometimes shorter form but you know to writing that 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 takes that wouldn't have a space anywhere else and give it that space to breathe um that crosses time and all sorts of other barriers i think is 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 very slow journalism and and it's been hugely successful um you know i think it's been i think they have more subscribers than us but that's football you know um but it's you know the blizzard's been incredibly uh successful and and i'm very proud to write for them um and we've we've kept going i mean we've been going for eight years now and we you know soon it's going to be our 10 year anniversary and for for a magazine startup um you know that's pretty impressive because you know most magazines don't go past the first year uh, but we found a, a niche and you know there's another thing not just the slow journalism thing but you know there's a certain ephemeral nature to kind of the internet and to and i love online i love the i love the way that online kind of publications have kind of freed up and challenged the mainstream kind of printed media i mean young people don't even see newspapers anymore i mean they don't you know what's this odd thing and i'm sure in 20 years time people are going to look back at it like what a waste of paper and ink jesus you know but if you have a product that is beautiful that smells good that is tactile something that you can hold and be proud of you know rather than something that is uh that you get that is recyclable or throw away then you then i think people still want that thing and that's what we have with delay gratification it's a very it's a very beautiful thing we always have a, a piece of art on the front cover an interview with the artist on on the inside um you know if you look at books it's it's, it's much the same thing i mean the internet was going to kill books and then it was ebooks was going to kill the paperback and it, it hasn't worked out like that it's actually held up pretty good in the modern environment so um it's a it's a, you know we're very proud of delay gratification and um you know subscribe no, dgquarterly.com. Get on there. Get get yourself four, four a year. Um, so uh, I think in the next issue, I'm doing something about how Serbia is trying to de-recognize Kosovo around. The world. I do a lot of non-football stuff in it, by the way. So um, uh, they're trying to de-recognize Kosovo at the moment by, uh, it's quite smart, really, in, following kind of Israel's lead and China's lead with Palestine and Taiwan. Um, Serbia is going to embassies in very small countries around the world, persuading them to de-recognize Kosovo because, you know, UN, you know, everybody has an equal vote. So countries like the Solomon Islands, for instance, you know, if you get if you get fifteen countries at the Solomon Islands, that's fifteen votes. You know, so it's a it's, it's this kind of very funny, not funny, it's got tragic consequences, but um, you know, this this little strange diplomatic game that's taking place behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know about. The last question on the podcast is always about the future. So, how do you see the future of football media going, and how do you self, see yourself fitting into that future? Part of me always thinks of like Julie Birchall. <laughs> you know, criticizing Toby Young, kind of writing about like, you know, pop, you know, 16 year olds should be writing about pop music. If you're in your 20s writing about pop music, what the fuck are you doing with your life? You know, <laughs> uh, 
And I think maybe at some point I might come to that kind of conclusion that maybe I shouldn't be right. I, I mean, I had that when I thought that suddenly the footballers started looking younger than me. <laughs> you know, when I started out, you know, it was these, they were kind of my people, you know. I mean, they were obviously in much better shape than me <laughs> and more talented than me. But, you know, they were my generation at least. But now, you know, uh, anybody who's a footballer at my age is, is retired. I find much more affinity with coaches. I find it more interesting always to find coaches. Um, the book I'm working on at the moment is very much based in youth culture, uh, which I can just about, you know, be hip with the kids enough for. Um, but, you know, there's a, yeah, I think, I think there, there's, a, there'll be a moment where it's kind of like, you know, do, do I have anything that I can add really? If I'm, if I'm not traveling and telling an interesting story somewhere or, or anything like that, do I, I mean, is there anything I can really add to this? I mean, if you think about how it's, football media has changed, the, the proliferation of, of great content, there's, there's never been a better kind of time to read kind of football related content articles podcasts um infographics whatever it is that you want to but there's never been a worse time to be paid for it um and you know i I suspect at some point there will be a correction in that um that people will be prepared to pay for it uh because there will be a mass dying out of the content that they want and you know I, i still believe that if you've if you have quality um you know there is that people will still pay for it um and people who are commissioning it will know that and so someone like the Bleacher Report, for instance, I mean, I hope, I mean, I think it's healthy. I mean, I, maybe we'll, this will come out and then it'll go out of business or something. But, you know, they've, they've been brilliant in backing some of my reporting trips, you know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not difficult sell to to a social media kind of team that are used to kind of 15 second clips of, you know, Messi riding a goat or something, you know, <laughs> I, it's, this is a 10,000 word story about North Korea. So, you know, they're, they're, there's still outlets out there, and I, I still think there's 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 hope that the stories will still be written um, in the future. But you know, it, these might be different, unrecognisable outlets to what we have today. So it's the the best of times. It was the worst of times. You heard it from James Montague first. James, what's the best way for people to follow your work and see what what it is that you're writing? Uh, probably Twitter. So James Piotra. So uh, J A M E S P I O T R. I have an awkward uh, sounding Polish middle name, which I thought I was writing out when I signed up for Twitter ten years ago. But it turns out that that was my <laughs> that was my handle. So I'm stuck <laughs> with the handle. So um, so yeah. So Twitter's good. Um, you know, and I guess some bookshops. In, in the UK and America might have a couple of the books in there. Uh, occasionally I see them, uh, in there. So, uh, you can buy, uh, 31 nil billionaires club, uh, and when Friday comes from, from some, some good bookshops somewhere. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been a really interesting chat from my end and I hope you've enjoyed the experience as well. That's been great. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the football media podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.